prayers uh, in the form of a book entitled The Valley of Vision. And I want to share a part of a prayer in that book, The Valley of Vision, called Divine Mercies. Thou eternal God, thine is surpassing greatness, unspeakable goodness, superabundant grace. I can as soon count the sands of the ocean's shores as number your favors towards me. I know but a part, but that part exceeds all praise. Friends, the God of the Bible is a God of abundant grace. He is a good God who gives good gifts to people, undeserving people. Countless are his blessings. New are they every morning that he bestows upon us. This morning, as we continue our sermon series in the book of Genesis, we see God's grace revealed in the aftermath of the devastating flood. Noah and the flood, perhaps a, a story in scripture that's familiar to you. We've been taking a look at it and its aftermath over the last couple weeks. I want to zero in on God's grace in the aftermath of the flood this morning. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find that on page 6. Genesis 9, page 6. Uh, if you need a Bible, we always say this on Sunday mornings, we'd love to give you one. In the lobby, there are black hardback Bibles. You can take one of those. Uh, you can give, get one for a friend as well if you have a friend who needs one. Uh, Genesis chapter 9 on page 6. I'll read verses 1 through 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its blood, with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. 
I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The aim of this sermon is that God reveals his grace by restating his creation blessing, by restraining human violence, and by ratifying his covenant. So God reveals his grace here post-flood by restating his creation blessing, by restraining human violence, and by ratifying his covenants. And so in that aim of the sermon, there, you'll see there's three points or three movements, creation, blessing, restated, human violence restrained, and God's covenant ratified. So first, creation, blessing, restated. We see this primarily in verses 1 through 3, also in verse 7. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered, that they are entrusted to you. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Now this ought to sound familiar if you've been tracking with us in this series that we've been walking through in the book of Genesis. Um, I should have mentioned that earlier. We're, we're going through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, and we've entitled this sermon series, God the Creator and Redeemer. We're nearing the end. We have a few more Sundays left before we get to chapter 11. And so if you've been tracking along, these verses ought to sound familiar. They are an echo of chapter 1, where we see this creation blessing first spoken. Sometimes it's called the creation mandate from God to humanity. We saw it in Genesis 1. You can flip back there with me. Genesis 1, 28, 29. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I mean, this is just a copy. And here it comes again in Genesis 9. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. So very similar, but not identical, is it? There's some differences between the creation blessing, the creation mandate in Genesis chapter 1, and then what we see here in its restatement in Genesis chapter 9. Notice a difference is this element of fear and dread among the creatures toward humans. This is a post-fall reality and speaks to the alienation that happened on all fronts 
at the fall, alienation between man and God, between people and people, between people and creatures. So we see this element of fear and dread that was absent in chapter 1. There's a similarity in that there's dominion in both this call, this delegation of authority to men and women to exercise stewardship or caretaking responsibilities over creation, but there's a sense of fear and dread, a sense of trepidation here to result of, of the fall that we saw in Genesis chapter 3. There's also a transition in diet that some of you may be singing hallelujah to. We see herbivores, a, a plant-based diet only in chapter 1, and now there's a transition to omnivores. You can eat both plants and animals here. God's delegated authority is restated, though. The word dominion is in both chapter 1 and chapter 9. Friends, dominion, important clarification, does not mean domination. Dominion is an authority word. It's a, a stewardship word, a caretaking word. God entrusts creation to human beings. We are the crown of his creation. We alone bear God's image that sets us apart from every other created thing. We, we bear his image, and he's entrusted us as his image bearers with responsibility to care for creation. Not to dominate it, not to abuse it, but to cultivate it, to use it for God's good purposes and for our blessing as well. So there's this restatement of the creation mandate, the, the delegation of, of authority and, and dominion. It's a stewardship word, a responsibility word, a caretaking word. We see this elsewhere in, in the scripture, Psalm chapter 8, where God speaks of the set-apart nature of human beings. You have given him, humanity, dominion over the works of your hands, over creatures. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. This is creation, mandate, creation, blessing, Language that is funneling into the Psalms as well. And notice the emphasis on multiplication. We saw multiplication, be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1, 28. It's also restated here, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, and Genesis 9, verse 7. You be fruitful and multiply, and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Have you thought about the significance of this multiplication? Why is God intent on encouraging his people to multiply? Notice, he is positive about population growth, isn't he? He wants humanity to flourish from a numerical standpoint. Why? Why is it repeated? It's repeated. It's important. The significance is the spread of God's glory. The significance of being fruitful and multiplying is the spread of of God's glory. You see, God's glory is his goal. It's always his goal. It's here as well. We are his image bearers, his representatives in this world, his, his vice regents, meaning the ones he delegates authority and ownership and stewardship to. And we're created and commissioned to go out, bear God's image, show a faithful reflection of his character, of his leadership. And it's like little 
glory lanterns all over the place that are just shining more glory to God. That's, that's what is at stake here. The significance of multiplication is God's glory because God's glory is his goal. It's always his goal. He desires his glory to be manifest in all creation as the waters cover the earth. God's glory is God's goal. We see the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 14. This, this coming day, it's an imperfect reflection, manifestation of God's glory now, but one day it will be perfect and full. Habakkuk speaks of it. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. There's coming a day where his glory will be fully, perfectly displayed. A question about God's glory. We've addressed this before, but I think it's helpful when we talk about God's glory being God's goal. John Piper writes very, very helpfully about this, and I want to point you to his book, Desiring God, because a question that arises when we speak of God being out for his glory is oftentimes this. Is God pig-headed in seeking our praise? Is he egotistical, kind of this glory sucker? Is, is, is he wrong in seeking his own glory? Is he pig-headed? No, God would not be God if he didn't seek his own glory. If he didn't seek to manifest his goodness, his character, among all his creation. That's what sets him apart. And the question in our minds that, man, this seems egotistical, is us viewing God through human lenses and trying to put him in a human category or a human box. God would not be God if he didn't seek his own glory and his own praise from his creatures. And we find delight and satisfaction and joy when we give him glory, because it's what we were created to do. We find who we truly were created to be when we glorify God, when we use our gifts rightly, when we use our authority rightly in society, in the home, in the church, it glorifies God and it satisfies us. We become less of who we were created to be when we misuse that authority, when we walk in unfaithfulness and unrighteousness, we actually dehumanize ourselves because we're not shining glory back to him. We're turned inward on ourself and that is ultimately destructive. We actually dehumanize ourselves when we seek our own glory and about our own selves instead of being about God and his business. Reflect God's glory in all that you do. Seek him, praise him. It's the most satisfying reality in your soul. God reveals his grace post-flood, first by creation, blessing being restated, second, by human violence being restrained. Human violence being restrained. We see this in verses four through six. With this diet change from plant to flesh, animals, we see a caveat in verse four, don't we? You may eat flesh, but, verse 4, you shall not eat flesh with its life in it. That is, its blood in it. Well, what, what is going on here? The blood is to be off limits. 
What's happening here? God is preparing his people to appreciate the use of blood in atoning sacrifices. We've already seen atoning sacrifice, the spilling of blood on the altar in chapter 8, the altar that Noah built when he got out of the ark, an atoning sacrifice. He had some of the clean animals there, and he spilt their blood in worship of the living God. He's preparing us to appreciate the use of blood in sacrifices on an ongoing basis throughout the Old Testament. Blood is this covering, atoning reality for human wickedness, for human sin. And this is a shadow that gives way to the substance in Christ. All of those Old Testament sacrifices, all of that shedding of blood, where does it take you? It is a train ride, biblically, theologically, all the way to Jesus Christ, who the author of Hebrews says is the once and for all sacrifice. There's no more shedding of blood because Christ is sufficient. It's the once and for all. So all of this blood sacrifice gives way to the substance, the ultimate, the culmination in Christ. Friends, this is, this is how our sin is dealt with once and for all. Maybe you're here today and you don't know where you stand with Jesus. Let me encourage you. The, the priority of blood in this passage is meant to point you to Jesus, Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you because only in the shedding of blood at the cross can you be forgiven of your sin. That is the only mechanism of your freedom from sin and your forgiveness before God is if you trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's once and for all. No more sacrifices are needed after that. Which is why, I mean, this is, this is fulfilled in Christ. Last Saturday, we got some steaks from Costco. Forgive me if, if you're vegan philosophically. We can talk about that later. But I like a good steak, and I like it medium, you know? And so cutting through steak, on my, there's red stuff on my plate. Is that okay? Yes, it's okay. This blood language is fulfilled in Christ so that in our diet today, if you have, don't eat if it's in chicken, put that away. But <laughs> if you have it on a steak, it's, it's okay. It's fulfilled in, in Christ. It's fulfilled in Christ. His blood has been shed. It's been fulfilled. Now we enter this difficult, loaded discussion about the value of life. Notice what we read, verse 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Enter the hotly contested issue of capital punishment. Now, big topic here. I want to provide some biblical food for thought and an open invitation for us to have conversation over coffee, realizing that we cannot tackle this fully in a 30, 35-minute sermon. The reality is people who love Jesus for centuries have debated this issue, don't see eye to eye on it. I think the Bible speaks to it, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so we're wise to, 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 to wrestle with this. First, contextually, 
Why do you think this statement is here, given what we've already seen in Genesis? What precipitated the flood? What caused God's heart to be grieved and ultimately pour out the waters of judgment upon his people? What was one of, one of the key issues? Genesis 6, verses 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now we talked, there were a lot of issues going on in the unrighteousness, the corruption, the, the abuse of God's good abuse and misuse of God's good gift of, of marriage, right? Outside the covenant of marriage, we talked about that. But also there was grievous violence going on in that day, in Noah's day. Twice over, verse 11, violence. Verse 13, violence. A major area of unrighteousness that contributed to the waters of God's judgment being poured out was violence, murder. Stemming back from Genesis chapter 4, when Cain killed his brother Abel, enhanced in Lamech, the seventh generation from Cain who murders a man for a lesser offense, somebody just reviled him or disrespected him, and he brags about his murder of that one who disrespected him. Escalating violence. Major area of unrighteousness that contributed to the flood. God, post-flood, in his grace, seeks to restrain it. So he puts this mandate here as a means of restraining the violence, the murderous ways of humankind. There's tension here. I understand that. The issue of capital punishment is dicey. There's a conundrum here. Because the same conviction is behind people who argue for it and argue against it. And what is the conviction? Well, the conviction is the image of God, the sanctity of human life. It's the shared conviction of the sanctity of human life that lies at the heart of this. The sacredness of human life presents an unavoidable paradox in the debate. Describing this paradox, Oliver O'Donovan writes in his book, Measure for Measure, Justice in Punishment and the Sentence of Death. Listen, capital punishment is defended for exactly the same reason as it is opposed. It is opposed because bloodshedding is forbidden to us. It is defended to give social weight to that prohibition. Both murderer and a victim are made in God's image. If we respect the image in the person of the murderer, we seem to respond inadequately to his contempt of it in the victim. But if we respond adequately, we appear to reduplicate the contempt. We feel the tension. The sanctity of human life is at the heart of this issue. And people use that conviction of the sanctity of human life to argue either way. It's important, though, that this discussion is rooted earlier. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. The, the Imago Dei. 
Humans are created in the image of God, and the act of murder is, in fact, a blow against God himself. The sanctity of human life means that all humans have inestimable value. Value, because we bear God's image, we reflect him. Our value, that sanctity, is, is, is tied to him. There is, there is tension. There's a paradox here. One other quote I want to just bring to your attention. This is Ernest Van Hogg is written a, 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 a book called Is Capital Punishment Just? He writes, If there is nothing for the sake of which one may be put to death, can there ever be anything worth risking one's life for? If there's nothing worth dying for, is there any moral value worth living for? Can it be that existence, life itself, is the highest moral value, never to be given up or taken for the sake of anything? Friends, I, I would argue that the sanctity of human life is that moral value that is worth dying for. Capital punishment maintains the invaluable price tag on all human beings, securing the sacredness of human life and can serve as a right deterrent for that sacred human life being taken. People would disagree with me on that. I understand in, in the right context, I think that it is capital punishment can be appropriately applied. People would disagree with me on that. We can talk over coffee. I would, I would love to, to talk with you about that. Some help from the New Testament. First, Paul in narrative form. We studied this a year ago in our study on Acts, Acts 25, verses 10 and 11. Paul says before his trial in front of Festus, a Roman governor, I am standing before you, before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one could give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. So just in this narrative, Paul seems to say, look, if I've committed a crime punishable by death, then so be it. I, in fact, have not committed a crime, but if I have, so be it. So goes capital punishment in, in my case, if I have committed that kind of crime. So he seems to, to allude that it's, it's an appropriate form of punishment in a given case. Letter, later, in letter form, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 4, Paul writes of the established human authorities by God. Let every person be subject to the, the human governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God and those that God has instituted. For the government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So Paul is referencing the, the role of God-instituted, God-ordained human government to bear the sword, to execute God's wrath on wrongdoers. So there, there, there are contexts where we, we honor God's authority and the government 
meeting out punishments on someone who has perpetrated a grievous crime. Is there a lot, are there a lot of issues in this in a fallen world? Of course there are. Establishing guilt beyond any reasonable doubt, do we do that imperfectly? Yes, we do. Were there, are there injustices in this area? Of course there are. As we see with DNA evidence overturning verdicts, we do this imperfectly. But might it be that God's wisdom here in restraining human violence here in chapter 9 heightens the, the value, the price tag on humanity by seeking to restrain it through capital punishment? We may disagree about that. Open to coffee this week. We can talk more. Totally understand. Let's have another conversation. Creation blessing restated. Human violence restrained. Thirdly and finally, God's covenant ratified. God's covenant ratified. Verse 8, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Seven times in this section here, verses 8 through 17, seven times we see the word covenant. Covenant. It's at the forefront of this section. A covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. God is binding himself by way of a promise. This is a, a picture of his loyal love, his steadfast, unbreaking love. And he's ratifying it, notice, by a sign. What is the sign that he ratifies his covenant, that he establishes his covenant? The bow, the bow. It's the rainbow. When you see on a, on a cloudy, rainy day, that rainbow out there, it is a reminder for you. I know the text says it, it's a reminder for God. This is language that speaks of God in human terms so that we can understand God. God's never forgetting his promise, right? We're the ones who are prone to forget it. The, the rainbow, beautiful as it is, is a reminder that never again will God destroy the earth with a cataclysmic flood. Never again will he do that. It's his promise his binding promise. Why is this hopeful? Why is this hopeful? Well, we see that post-flood, human nature is unchanged. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, the intention of humanity's heart is still evil, and hence the need for sacrifice to atone for that evil that we see in Genesis 8, 20, 21, 22. But even in the midst of that evil, God, God is not going to send a cataclysmic flood to, to wipe it all out. In his unfolding plan of redemption, he gives us time. He's giving people time, a window of repentance before he comes again to bring, yes, judgment and salvation. But we have this time where God is forbearing, long-suffering with sinners the gospel is being propagated and shared so that people can jump through the window of repentance before he does come in judgment and salvation to consummate all things on that great day where you hear that final trumpet blast. So the hope that this points to is God's not going to just out of nowhere send a cataclysmic flood. 
He's not going to do that again. Some environmental disaster, he's not going to do that again. He will bring all things to their appointed end, as we talked about last week, when the final trumpet blasts and he returns in glory, riding on the clouds, gathering his people, his believers from the four corners of the earth. Until then, friends, the hope is and the invitation, the encouragement and urging is turn to the Lord Jesus and trust in him. Receive his mercy and his grace in this window of repentance that we have right now in redemptive history. Never again will he send a flood, a cataclysmic flood. The rainbow is a reminder of that. But be ready for his return. Look to him, await, and be ready for his return. He is unfolding his redemptive plan. The gospel's going out among all nations. Receive the gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ as that gospel goes out. Psalm 111 verses 1 through 4. Great are the Lord's works. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright, in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. As you see that beautiful rainbow, it's a reminder. How healthy is it for us as people to remember the glorious deeds of the Lord? He's built it into creation. You see the rainbow? Remember the glorious might of the Lord. His salvation, yes, his judgment, and his return. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord with our whole hearts. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your great and majestic works. Lord, this world is your theater to display your glory. And it is good for us to give you glory, reflect your glory back to you through our thoughts, our words, our actions. In Christ, you enable us to do that. Lord, in our sin, we cannot give you glory. But because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, we can, measure after measure, reflect your glory in this life. Lord, we long for you and your return when we will fully reflect your glory and see you face to face. Until then, Lord, would you empower us to live well in this present age. In Jesus' name, amen.